Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the mentor. I'm Mark Boris. It's really cool to see a new wave of young entrepreneurs hit the ground running. I get energized by seeing this young cohort in action. They're really coming up with some unique brand building approaches, upskilling, and really cool operational systems. So I'm catching up with Jack Bloomfield today. Now, I first met Jack three years ago, where he was making millions from his e-commerce business in Brisbane. And in those days, he has to turn up to see me with his mum because he was underage. He couldn't book into a hotel on his own. Now he's ramped it up. He's starting a refund fraud detection business, and it's called Disputified. And it helps online businesses detect potential fraudulent purchases before they occur. His business has been backed by Blackbird Ventures and founders from BigCommerce, WooCommerce, and Google Shopping. And I have to say, to be frank with you, I've actually backed him too. I've got an investment in it. He's a young entrepreneur, but this comes with its own set of problems. Most of Jack's employees and investors are nearly twice his age or even more. And they know more than him about how businesses are run. Jack's also got boundless energy and his standards for himself aren't necessarily the same as his team. So how does he keep this in check and maintain motivation as well as all the time observing the age differences? How do you identify the needs to individuals working for you who don't necessarily know what you want? How do you propel the heartbeat of the business right through the whole organization? Let's get into it. G'day, Jack. Welcome to The Mentor, mate. Right, thanks for having Welcome me. back, actually. It's a long time. How long was since the last time we did a podcast with you? I think it was three, three years it would have been. Pre-pandemic. Yeah, and I had mum sitting there as well. That's um, right. So it would have been pre-18 before I could check into a hotel. That's right. You couldn't travel on your own. Since then, and why I wanted to come back is I want to actually catch up with you and see how you're going with your new venture. You started a new venture again pre-pandemic, as I seen recall. Disputify? Yeah, so we started early 2020 and thankfully um, we did it. I think we all raised the first round of funding um, in March and that was before anyone knew the whole world was going to shut down. So I think we were probably two weeks um, before everything went south. And if we hadn't have done it before then, God knows where we'd be now. So So you're like 20? I'm 20 as of um, two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. So I'm officially old now. You're 20 years of age. I soon recall you were, you were young and a little wet behind the ears in terms of raising money type deal. You've been very successful in your own right. You had sold a lot of product. You were, you know, wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, very um, <laughs> idealistic, definitely mature in terms of business. How has the journey been over the last two years? I think it's been it's been interesting. There's probably one of the most important things is just backing yourself. And, you know, when you when you say kind of a bit wet behind the ears, looking back on it now, it's like, oh wow, there's so many things that I just didn't know. And it's hard. I mean, you do anything for the first time, you look at it, it's like oh, it seems like a relatively straightforward process. Um, you run out and you do it, and then you realize, oh, there's actually all this hidden complexity behind it that you now gotta tackle. And if you're not excited by that, um, you'll kind of hit the first hidden complexity and be like, oh, this is not for me. I'm done. I'm going home. Thank you. Um, but no, it's something that I love. Um, it's definitely been a ride over the last two years. It's been like interesting. It's what gets me up in the morning. It's exciting. Um, and yeah, I like, wouldn't have it any other way. But yes, definitely when I started, um, thought it was going to be a lot easier than it is. And maybe even looking forward now, it'll be, I think it might be easier moving forward and maybe it's just going to get harder. Who knows? But do you think... If you had known then, in hindsight, you may not have done it if you had known what you know now? Honestly, yes. Um, and I, I say that not 
not because I, I like I like challenge, but at the same time, challenge is hard. Um, but I think what does excite me though is like we're on a mission to fundamentally change the way that people buy things online, and we're essentially installing a trust layer for the internet. And to be able to build something that does that and actually has a tangible impact for the people that build it, yes, it's going to be hard. Like it, you kind of you just know it's going to be hard. Do you know how hard? Well, no, not really until you go out and do it. So. I mean, like if you're doing it for something bigger than yourself, and I feel like that is why I'm doing it, and you're surrounded by people that kind of make it all that much more stomachable, if you want to use that word, um, yeah, it does really help. So short answer, yes, definitely would still do it. Um, Would I recommend it for anyone else? No, I mean, if you're going to go out and you're going to do any sort of startup or any sort of business for the first time, it's always going to be hard. But once again, you don't know what you don't know. Um, So just kind of run at it and see what comes of it. Sometimes naivety is actually a blessing. I agree. Definitely. And then with a little bit of courage, you can actually ride through it. Do you think your naivety actually, and I don't mean naive in a sort of a a ridiculous sense, but, you know, the naivety as to the difficulties that get put in front of you, let alone COVID, by the way. I do things and I don't overthink it. I don't actually sit there thinking about all the things that could go wrong because I can never work out all those variables. We have a tendency as humans to build our own algorithms in our brain And in the algorithms, try and work at every single variable. Of course, there's no such thing as best model because you never can get every single variable. Look at what they did during the COVID period in terms of trying to do the modeling. They didn't have all the variables, had the variables in that suited the narrative. And the narrative was, let's get everybody vaccinated. Therefore, the modeling was wrong. You know, they didn't get 500,000 cases and 50,000 deaths and all sort of stuff. But our brain tends to do this because that's just how we are as humans. If you had to sit down and try to work out every single variable of what could go wrong, you probably would be still sitting here today trying to do disputify. I think in in any good decision that anyone makes, there's you sit there, you think about it, you think about the risks as well. Um, but it comes back to that you don't know what you don't know. So you can sit here and you can think like you can write a list of all the 10 things that could possibly go wrong, say doing a startup and startups is probably one of the most risky businesses you can do. You raise money from day one, you're using other people's money to fund something that you want to do. It's a whole nother ball game. So you, you can write, I say 10, you can write a list of 100 things of things that could possibly go wrong. So you do that, you sit down, you overanalyze, um, you kind of sit there, analysis, what's the word, analysis, paralysis? Yeah, yeah. So no, I, I don't do it. Um, I do like to think that I'm a kind of person that will still sit there and think about the risks in regards to what I do. I knew what I was walking into, but at the same time, the idea of kind of what it could be was more exciting than the risks that posed to myself and everyone else and everything else that I was doing. So I just thought that like, you know, at the end of the day, if you surround yourself with the right people, you know, you're doing what you're doing for the right reason. Um, and you run out there and just have a go that for me and that kind of the mantra of having a go, um, was probably the most important thing. And just kind of being aware, self-aware enough to know what's working as you go along the journey, what's working, what's not working, why is it not working, reflecting on that kind of changing course and just being open to feedback and ideas and just not being so stuck in like, this is the original idea. This is kind of where we want to go. Um, Here are all the risks associated with that. You start, there's going to be another hundred risks that open up, but there's probably going to be other opportunities that open up that you never saw. So being open to all of it and just kind of taking it one step at a time with some sort of North Star in mind of like, this is where we want to get to, um, is how I did it, is the right way to go about it. Maybe not. There's probably more sensible ways to do it, but um, I think it's probably worked for me. That way works for me too. So, And mathematically, it's impossible for our brain to calculate it, although we try to, we tend to. So it's better off just to say, okay, what am I playing? What's in front of me right now? What is the iteration I need to make? I'll deliver on that. Then I'll go to the next variable that presents itself or the next set of variables that present themselves, which is sort of what you've been doing over the last three years. I was going to say, even on that, it, it might be kind of a bad line to draw, but when you look at someone starting a business for the first time and uh, the main concern is, well, if I start a business and I've currently got a job, um, I've got to quit that job and I've got to go and start this business. Now, like there are risks associated with starting the business, but you'll find if most people, like when you actually look at what are you most scared about, most often than not, it's what people are going to say if it doesn't work. And it's the ideas and those opinions and everyone else. It's like the what if, and it's not the what if of the actual risk of like, I might go bankrupt. It is the, what is everyone else going to think of me when I go bankrupt? So if you're able to kind of 
separate the actual risk from the perceived opinions of everyone else based on what you're about to do going wrong. Um, I think those are two very different things that people intertwine and I do it quite often just without even knowing about it. Instinctively you do it. Yeah, I, I, I try not to when I pick myself up on yeah. it, but I just find that just kind of how society and just the way things are wide, um, it, it, the two things almost go hand in hand and I don't believe they should. You cannot be worried about what other people are going to think because they're going to think what they're going to think. You know, like, and to be frank with you, the people who you trust, who are actually your friends, they all know how hard Jack works and they also know how hard and how committed Jack was to the purpose, the objective, by changing the way things happen and building a good trust platform between consumer and vendor. That's all that matters. It doesn't really matter what the opinions of others are at the end of the day. And you'll never meet them. They'll never have any impact on your life. You're a young man. How do you deal with that proposition when you are confronted with risk and therefore potential failure? Because I know there was a period there where you're not liquidity, but you spent a lot of the money, which is normal hap- normally happens, and you've got to raise some more money and that's hard to do. And you're thinking, shit, you know, I've raised money from Mark. He's going to think I'm whatever, I'm a dud. Yep, not doing good enough. Yes. Not doing good enough. Yep. How did you deal with that? Uh, I mean, there probably is no good process there. Um Maybe what's worked for me is I kind of figure out exactly, well, if something is going wrong, what exactly do we need? Like what are the possible things that we could do to solve the situation in front of us? Um, And so, for example, if you use the liquidity example, um, one of those things is, well, either we figure out ways that we can make more money within the business to self-sustain. Well, that's probably another six, 12 months away. God knows. So this is not going to solve the immediate problem. Um, the alternative there is to be able to go out and raise more money from the market. And it is hard too, because once again, even raising a second round of capital for a business is something that I'd never done. Hadn't raised a first, hadn't raised a second. And you don't really know if you're doing it the right way. And I think that analysis paralysis, um, what we were talking about earlier, is almost like if you have done something, if you've done something before and it's either worked or it didn't, the idea of you going back and so say, for example, you have someone they start a business, they raise some capital originally, um, doesn't work out, no one gives them any more money, things go bad. For them to be able to look back on that situation, go back and raise more money for a new business would be automatically harder. But then to then go and raise money a second time in that business is almost going to be from the get-go, the fear, the insecurity, oh my God, this is going to be a repeat of what's going on. So it's almost like these past experiences that I have never had, um, I think probably served me in a really good way where I look at it and I just objectively go, well, what do we need and how are we going to do it? As opposed to kind of taking then into all of kind of like, once again, what could go wrong? What are those past experiences? What, what do I fear? Um, and that's a factor, but it's less so of kind of almost like post-traumatic stress from kind of past events gone wrong, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, no, I, I get it. I and mean, we use language in our business and we are confronted by language by investors, what's the burn rate? As soon as someone uses that word, there is an assumption or presumption that you are spending their money or burning their money. Burn rates, for me, is a word or a phrase that should not be used. Maybe investment rate. You may say, why why so? Why? Well, because it, it, it sort of conjures up ideas that you are burning money in a burn rate. And as soon as we start talking about burn rate internally and or with others externally, it sort of starts to build in your brain, the proprietor, the entrepreneur, someone like you, that you're sort of behind the eight ball. You're not, you're not building something brand new and investable and mm. uh, looking good and something worth reinvesting in. But you're sort of just, just eventually spending this pot of money, which correct. will go to zero one day. Correct, and, and it's yeah. a burn rate. It's like it's 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 sort of like chasing its own tail, and it's going to fly up its own ass at the end of the day. It's burn rate is a bad phrase, but unfortunately, investors and 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 CFOs and people who run businesses use that terminology a lot because you know it's just something we throw around. But it actually implants something in our brain, and I think language is really important, and. You're a very positive guy, but I actually think it's really important that you are positive and you don't put a positive spin on things, but you look at the positive side of it. In other words, this is a business that has been invested in and is building something. It will require more money to continue to build it. This is the thing we're trying to achieve. It sounds very small and very slight change to the language but I think it's incredibly important when it comes to how you present in front of an investor. 
Definitely. And I mean, investors and like I've been through an experience now where the first round of funding that we raised was from Australian investors and mostly like yourself and family offices. And those conversations, like we were lucky, um, people like you who are willing to invest in things that are more of a, like from an ex- from an Australian point of view, doing what we're doing seems like a long shot and doesn't seem like something like most people would not put a dollar near it. Whereas you go to the US, for example, and the language and the way that they look at things, it is we are looking for things that will change the world, change the way that people do things on a scale that actually matters. And that's the conversation there. And I do think that is the one thing when you look at kind of Australia and startup ecosystem, maybe even just general business. Um, people like to almost take where it should be, nail it down four notches and like that's the level that you should be talking at. Whereas in the US, it's flipped. It's like this is the level it is. You should be talking four notches above that because that's where it could be um, and that's what you're selling. So it's just a completely different mindset and at least just what I found. That's an interesting one. So Prior to going to the US, what was your mindset? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm from Brisbane, um, born and bred Australian. So like I've grown up here, it, it, like the the standard, I had catch myself all the time. Like um, to even explain to someone that I've just met what I do, I, almost, I, I purposely under explain it. Like, what do you do? I run a software company. Well, it's not, it is, but like you got to ask another question. I'll then explain it. But it's like, in the US, for example, you're way more forthcoming with what you do and there's a different conversation. So yes, I, I have almost been growing up in a society where it is those four notches below and it does, and I think that's where you have a lot of Australians and it is changing, but you have a lot of Australians who will start to go over to the US and look to raise money from US investors. And if there's one thing they do wrong, it is not speaking the lingo, not positioning the business in a way that's really impactful. And it's even like all the way, that's raising money. It's down the end, but like even the idea stage itself, like to be able to go out there and do something that in your mind might seem cool, but it's, it's just building a business off the wrong metrics. Um, whereas profitability comes first where that is important for a small business. But when you're looking for a hyper growth startup, um, it's not what those sort of investors are looking for. Um, and it's not the returns they're looking for either. You're not going to get the same return out of Airbnb as you would with a bakery, for example. So yeah, it's just a different way to frame it. And it's hard too, because until you go and you do it, you have these conversations and you learn the hard way because people say no. And then you've got to be open to ask why, like, what's the problem? Why aren't you willing to invest in us? And you get the feedback of, well, you know, we just don't really think the market size is big enough. And then you go, well, hang on a second, but no, the market size is big enough. And then you start to frame that conversation in an entirely different way. You prove the pitch, that one little bit. Great. There's one new thing you're doing. So it's, yeah, I think you just learn through hearing feedback, just trying to improve, um, but you've just got out there and do it. And if you can find someone who has already done it, whether it's raising money, whether it's starting a business, whether it's just coming up with an idea that's worthwhile, just find someone who's literally done it before and have a conversation and just make sure you're on the right path. So- what did Jack Bloomfield learn when you did your, your Series B or your second raise? What did you learn about the language? What did you learn about the pitch? We have no idea here in Australia <laughs> of the way they think. Yeah, I mean, I might, but only because I've been exposed to it. But generally speaking, we are a totally different culture here. Um, and you're right, market share, market size, penetration, all those things, they're really important to them. And you've got to be able to prove it too. You can't just say, oh, well, this is what I think. You've got to have some sort of logic associated with it. One, your energy and your passion about the thing that you believe in, that's important to them. The second thing is the ethic of it. What problem are you trying to solve? What is the ethic associated with this? And the third thing is what's the logic? What I mean by that is how do you intend to deliver? What are the tools that you've got or you're developing that would allow you to deliver the ethic that you passionately believe in? <laughs> well, maybe it's um, – I'll, I'll answer that in a different way, but maybe it's probably – like the backstory here is like last time we spoke, um, I was very heavily involved in the e-commerce businesses that I was running. Um, some of those when I was 15, um, got 500 bucks from mowing lawns next door and learned how to do it off YouTube. So um, took six months to even make a single sale. So I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and eventually the business started to grow, went into different stores, sold different products. Most of them were over from China, drop shipped a lot of them. Um, but yes, did very well off it, sold most of the stores in early 2020 when I started Disputify. But Disputify came about out of an own personal problem. Like we would get customers all the time who would place a transaction with us and say their name's Mark. They've got Mark's credit card address. So it's you using your information to buy things online completely legitimately. So it's not credit card fraud. So 
transaction would go through. You, um, the individual, would get the product in your hand because the merchant doesn't know anything better. And then you turn around, go back to that merchant and say, hey, my product just never arrived or the product I got wasn't what I ordered, or the product wasn't even in the box, or I ordered two and one was missing. Like there is a list of here to the door of things that you could say to a merchant to try to get the money back without sending that product back first. So that's what was happening to us. Um, we were losing thousands of dollars a month to it. Um, I was hiring people over in the Philippines to literally take Excel spreadsheets of all the orders that we've got. We had like a, like a, not like a blacklist, but like just a list of people that we didn't want to do business with because this had happened to us previously. And we we're just skeptical of them. Um, and we would cross-reference every single new order that we'd get against this existing list. And these people would change email addresses, mobile numbers, phones. So it was never a direct match. So it was incredibly difficult. Anyway, that's where Disputify came from. Um, the biggest problem we had as well was everything we did was in service of customer experience. So we would do like a refund policy that was 90-day return period, change your mind, money back guarantee, anything you could possibly think of, we would try and offer it because you want more sales as a business. And that came at the detriment of people ripping that off. So we pulled all that back instantly. Um, and there you go. Sales took a dive. People really cared about the refund policy. It was one of those differentiators that we had. So Disputify came about as let's help merchants better understand the type of customer that they are dealing with, who are the two, three, four percent of people who like to buy things online, get them delivered and claim one of those excuses to try and get a refund out of the merchant. Let's help merchants identify them and add some steps and processes before sending the next product out. Great. The next angle of things is cool. Well, if we know who not to trust on behalf of a merchant, how can we then reward customers that are trustworthy? You and I, we're not out to rip off merchants. What more could a merchant do for us that could help realistically change the way that I would want to shop with that merchant? First thing we're doing there is something called an instant refunds policy. So what that looks like is you as a customer can look at a website that has this installed. You'd see it on the product page. It's a banner that would sit under like where Afterpay or a zip would sit near the add to cart button. And it says the product is eligible for instant refunds. You click it, pops up. And it explains that if you buy this product, you can now shop with confidence knowing that if you get it, it's too big, it's too small, there's a legitimate reason you want to return it and it's within the merchant's return period, you can get a refund instantly without having to wait 5, 10, 15, 20 days for your money back. So for us, that's kind of where, where that came in. I know I've given the overview. I probably haven't actually answered any of your questions, but they're the tools. They're, that's the there way you've covered the tools. That's part. the logic. Because yeah. <laughs> energy is a dynamic thing. Things change. There's other iterations of the marketplace. Maybe maybe COVID actually showed you things that you have to embed in your software. I do want to go back to your tools, but I also want to talk to you about how you maintain your energy at the head of the business. Because if the business doesn't have someone at the head of the business with energy, then the business will fail. I don't care what business they are. It needs a leader who leads. And you don't lead by being dominant. You lead by having energy, by instilling that energy in the whole business. So let's go to the break. We'll come straight back. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. back here with Jack Bloomfield and we're talking about Disputify, which is his latest venture. I do want to ask you, Jack, what has been the most challenging thing since you kicked this off with a whole lot of enthusiasm and uh, what's been the biggest challenge for you? 
I'll say one thing and it's been a challenge, but it's been probably one of the most rewarding things that I've learned, I believe, how to do. I wouldn't say properly, but I'm getting there um, and that's managing people. It is managing people is one component, which is when you have an existing team and you come in and you guide them in the right direction and you kind of learn the difference between micromanagement versus no management and you learn the line of like what's acceptable, what's not. But it goes so much further than that. It is how do you attract the right people to begin with? Um, How do you go out and headhunt them if they're not coming to you? Um, How do you then sell them on the mission in a way that makes sense? Um, And then how do you convey to them that this is a stable environment where like people have kids, um, they have responsibilities, they have things that I don't have and they look at me and it's never been said, but they know that it's a now 20 year old running the show. Um, Yes, got lots of support behind me, but at the same time too, it's me making the decisions. So what are they actually signing up for? And it's having that conversation in a way that seems uh, that that is natural, that comes across in the right way and you kind of find that balance. So there's that. Um, and then, yeah, obviously just the side of like, how do you kind of band people together to push them forward into one direction? Because I like, as a founder, you kind of want everyone to perform to people because you talk about passion and inspiration and like the founders got to have that, but everyone else, you can't, you automatically expect everyone else is going to be on the same level. It just never works out that way. Like people are there, but they're not the same level. So you almost start to get disappointed with people who, you don't expect them to work weekends, but it's just certain things that you wish they would do, but they didn't. Um, so it's finding that balance between and just realizing and overcoming the hurdle of like, you need to structure the way in which you motivate and the way in which you communicate um, in a way to people that are on board and are passionate and are excited by the journey, but also don't own majority of the company and probably aren't going to be as motivated as me. I know that if I was joining a company, same mission, but I didn't own as much as I did and it wasn't my thing. By default, you're not going to be as enthusiastic about it, no matter how well you cut it. So for me, that's probably been the biggest thing. Um, Have I come a long way? Yes, definitely. But it's also like as a 20-year-old now, explaining and kind of giving advice and pushing people who are double my age, who know a lot more than I do, um, who are experts at what they do, pushing them in the right direction and trying to give them feedback. And like, it, it, it is this awkward dynamic where you don't want to feel like you're stepping on other people's toes. But how I do it is you just be open and transparent. It's like, I, I, I don't know if this is the right way that we should be doing something. What do you think? How do you feel and put it back on them? That's worked really well for me. It's a pretty interesting thing because generally speaking, you have to employ experts, particularly mm-hmm. when it comes to coding and all those other things you have to do. Being skilled in, say, um, data science, but you have to employ them. How do you work out who to employ? How do you work out at the interview that, should I'm going to get on with this person? I don't think I've ever said this, but my I, I fundamentally believe that the only way I will ever get anywhere in life um, is by surrounding myself with people who know all the things that I don't know. So when I look at hiring people who are similar age to me, ones that I might find easier to socially get along with, I, yeah, I spend all my days people twice my age, but you look at working with a 25-year-old versus a 40-year-old, it's like, oh, 25, it's more fun. It's kind of, yeah, it just makes more sense. No, it is like one of the biggest mistakes you could honestly make. Yes, they are cheaper, but at the end of the day, you're hiring someone based on what they can do and based on what they can bring to a team. So for me, trying to make a distinction between who's good and who's not is hard because like data science, for example, I don't know what I'm talking about. So how am I expected to ask questions that make sense and like not only know what questions to ask to get to the bottom of how good they are, but then how do you judge the response from what they say? You don't know. So being able to pull in different people, and I am lucky, people who I know who are experts in what they do, who might not necessarily work for us now, but are a close connection and bring them as part of the hiring process. Just like, hey, can you sit with person X, Y, and Z? Just meet them, ask some questions, get to the bottom, and you tell me what you think objectively. Um, That I found works really well. And just, yeah, shifting the kind of responsibility. Like at the end of the day, the buck stops with me, but I don't know everything. So finding people who do know what they're talking about in something and it helps you cut through most of the BS. Let's flip it over and let's talk about the individuals who are dealing with you. Have you had any issues where you think someone said, well, this guy's only 20, what the hell is he he doesn't know anything. I'm out of here. I mean, you've, have you have you had some attrition? <laughs> has anyone said it directly? No. Well, but do you know they're thinking it? Yeah. Has has it has it been has it been thought? Uh, definitely. Like it, it's hard too because at, back to the point around the buck stops with me. Um, I'm the one at the end of the day, like if we can't, you know, if the business in is, isn't in a position to raise more money for something or it isn't in a position to be cash flow positive, which is we don't have to raise money. 
like people can come and go, but the guy who's responsible at the end of the day is the one whose head's on the chopping block. So for me, it's having and empathy is probably the most important thing. Just trying to understand where other people are coming from and just framing conversations in ways that make sense to them. And you just got to know the person that you're talking to. And I I just make a lot of time to try and understand that. Um, Yeah. I I don't know. I think it's definitely been said. Um, Have I ever heard it? No, Um, but I'm aware of it. And People do look at younger people doing like you've kind of got to make a few people angry to do anything in the world. Um, most people won't like what you're doing. Some people will love it. Other people will hate it. There'll be kind of people in the middle. So you just got to expect it. Do you feel like you're becoming a bit of a psychologist? <laughs> I, I wouldn't use psychologist, but yeah, kind of same same attributes like any leader does, regardless of what you're doing, whether it's me, like you, for example, you, you work with a lot of different people. You got to know how those people work. You got to know what drives them. For some people, it might be money. For some people, it might be mission. You know, some people, it's just job security. Like everyone is different and asking the right questions to get to the bottom of the answer that you're looking for um, is I'm sure what you do every day as well. So I find it's just a couple of things. So it's it's either pay, they're just interested in money, mm-hmm. and as long as you've got the skill base and deliver, that's okay, then you're happy to pay them really well, mm-hmm. bonus and whatever. Some are interested in career path, path, so you've got to get to them by letting them think that there is a pathway here to get to a certain level. They might want to become the CEO, they might want to become the CFO, they might want to become one of the, the C-suite. Others are interested in recognition. They want to be recognised and awarded not with a badge, but like publicly recognised within their organize within your organisation. It's usually around those three things that you need to sort of work out where they sit, you know. And sometimes a combination of all three. Obviously, it's a combination of all three, but some rank much more highly than others. I think it's one of the usually one of those three is sort of what I try and identify early days. Do you do you find that um, at least one of the biggest challenges I've found is um, some people know what they want, but then other actually most people don't. So if someone comes to you with a conversation around asking for a pay rise, one of the most challenging things I've found is most people actually don't like the the pay is what they think will solve the problem, but fundamentally there is something else that's going on. Maybe it is recognition. Maybe there is no clear path to leadership. There are one of those other things that actually need solving first. Um, and the pay is kind of like this cover up and you give them the pay increase. They'll be back in three months time with the same problems um, and nothing solved. So I don't know. Whether you no, no, I've, I've have experienced that. And, and I'll be honest with you, like I've, most businesses I've set up, um, the CEO doesn't stay on for any more than three years because they're all startup businesses because the business has new iterations, it matures. The person who's right for the business at the time as CEO, generally speaking, is rarely is right for the position as CEO in three years' time as the business grows. It, it, that's just my experience. I don't know why I have no science around. I've done no study on it, but that's just definitely my experience over the last 20-odd years in all the various businesses I've been involved in. The CEOs rarely last beyond three years if the business is growing. If the business stays the same, then the CEO lasts. Then you're going to ask yourself a question, you as a proprietor, what's wrong? Why Why am, am I not growing? Is it the CEO or is it the business or is it both? And it's, it's sort of quite an interesting question to ask yourself as an entrepreneur, as a proprietor. So, Jack, how important is money? Extremely important, and I it, it's really hard too because I like we've we've got really lucky um, with people who are patient capital. But what I found is anyone that like if you go to someone and you approach them and you ask them for an investment for something, um, and that's simply speaking, but you you can ask them a question: Are you happy to wait? This could be a couple of years, and you're really open about it. Like there might be a bit of time here before you're able to see any of the investment back. And the risk of it actually turning into smoke um, is probably quite high as well. If you have that conversation, you're kind of already on the right path. Most people don't. Um, So even just trying to identify someone who is happy to say that they're okay to wait for a dividend for a couple of years, but then in six months' time starts asking questions and starts to become one of those shareholders that you decide it's difficult to deal with. It is is something that's taking my focus off the business and the thing that you want um, is now (laughs) becoming a a distraction from how we're actually going to get there. So yes, I think it is, it's incredibly important. um, And it's all about just trying to find, and it is hard, but just trying to find the right investors from day one and just having those open and honest conversations. So everyone is on the same page. And if someone does approach you after six months time and start asking for returns and what's going on, you remind them back to that conversation you originally had around kind of how you wanted to run this business. And as long as everyone's on the same page and it's clear, then yeah, I think you'd be okay. So when, when I was a manager with Kerry, 
he used to always say to me, son, it's one thing to be there running the business and be in the weeds. That's important. You've got to do that as a proprietor. He said, but you've also got to be out there talking to the markets about raising money down the track. You should never go to the market to raise money when you need money because that's when you won't get it. He said, you should be out there talking to people all the time. You might see a window that you need to raise some money and it's available now. You may not need it now, but you might raise it now because it's available now. So I said this to someone beginning of this year. They said to me, oh, well, we're going to go to market later this year, calendar year 23, to do our second round or third round, whatever it was they were doing, for a startup, good business. They needed to raise another 10 and 10 million. And I said to them, yeah, but I wouldn't be going at the end of the year because anything could happen. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and then, by the way, we didn't have inflation or hyperinflation. We didn't have interest rates going up, et cetera, et cetera. We didn't have any liquidity events in the world. We didn't have a war. We had nothing. It was, it was I, said, well, I said, you should be actually out there trying to raise the money now, or at least out there putting it out there that you're interested in raising money. And if someone comes to you and says, Are you, would you like to raise money? Then you take the money off the table. Kerry always said, if the money's on the table, you take it off the table. And and it's a bit like that was his sort of his gambling sort of mantra. If he was winning at, in Las Vegas and the table was full of his winnings, he just didn't keep throwing it back. He took it away, which is one of the reasons he was only ever allowed to um, gamble in, in win casinos because generally speaking he would go on, as soon as he started winning, he never kept playing. And the, the, the deal for casinos is you win, you keep playing, you put it all back plus more. He didn't do that. He took it off the table. And he told me, he said, if the money's on the table, you took it off the table. So I remember one stage there, there was a big managed fund who was trying to place the money of their superannuation funds that they managed into financial services businesses. We didn't need the money at the time. Um, we had plenty of cash in the bank. But they approached me. And I went and saw him and I said to him, look, blah, 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 this mob want to put some money. They would like to buy a third of the business. And he said, how much was it? It was quite a lot of money. And uh, and he said, yeah, take do the deal. Take it off the table. But we didn't need the money. And But thank God because if we had have waited a year or two and we would have tried to raise more money, we would not have been able to because conditions change, markets change. For example, like Australia now, like the world now, liquidity is starting to shrink a bit because what's happening is that startup investors – or investors in VCs or investors in second, third, fourth rounds are starting to say, well, one of the reasons we invested in businesses are starting up is because we're only getting 0.1 of a percent return if we left it in the bank. So we might as well put it into one of these startups because we might get 100% return, might get nothing, we might get 100% return. So of the you know $100 million we have to invest, we'll invest $20 million in these types of businesses. And we might only make it out of two or three, but when we average out our return, it's better than 0.1 of a percent. That dynamic is changing now. So interest rates are going up. So as interest rates go up this year, this calendar year, for those people who haven't gone out and raised enough money, they might have a problem because a lot of the liquidity that was being attracted to startups, et cetera, is going to start to contract a little bit. I'm not talking about necessarily in the US, but I'm talking about here in Australia. And it's sort of very interesting dynamic. So the point being, not only do you need to be in the weeds all the time, running your business, making sure the software is being properly developed and making sure the mission is being accomplished and making sure you keep all your staff on board and energised, blah, blah, blah. But equally, you've got to be out there talking to shareholders. Now, I know you send me lots of stuff and we get lots of shareholder reports. Just keeping in contact with the shareholders um, and going out talking to potential new investors is really important. In doing that, how does Jack Bloomfield and how does and who helps Jack Bloomfield prepare his pitch? Um, I don't know if this is an ideal answer. Um, there, there is no, uh, yeah, well, this is the answer. Um, no, I will. So the, the shower for me, it's very weird, but, um, I will talk to myself quite a lot. Um, and in a way where I'll think about something that I'm either doing the next day or something that I've been thinking about last couple of days. And I'll almost like play out conversations in how I think they're going to go. Like, what are some of the questions I think I'm going to get? How do I then respond to those questions? Um, like if I have to do a speech for something, I'll almost like rehearse what I want to say in the shower beforehand. Um, it's really, really, really weird. Um, I know, but it works. Rehearsal. Yeah, it, it, it works for me. And I think also too, it's not like when you look at investors, as you mentioned in the start of this episode, the most important thing they care about is the numbers. Um, yes, the vision and kind of mission and why you're doing what you're doing is also important, but 
everyone knows that. Like if you can clearly explain that within a minute or two, it's clear cut, like you've got that down pack, great. Next thing's numbers. And like, if you put your shoes in, like put yourself in investor's shoes, all they're looking for is like, well, how well's like, what is the probability of success here? Um, and as part of that is like, how well does this guy know his numbers? Because if he is in the weeds in the business every day, um, this is his thing that he's doing and he's really passionate about it. You'll know basic metrics. So simple questions like that, you've got to have the simple answers. And if you don't have them, um, that's one of the biggest downsides I see. So yeah, for me, it's getting that ready. Um, and then even too, just almost running it once again, running it past people who are better at it than I am. So sending the pitch deck and beforehand, this is how we want to do it. This is kind of how I've set it up. Does this make sense? Does this not make sense? Yes or no. Um, give feedback on that and then set up some time to chat. Like ask me the questions that you think a VC is going to ask. And then also too, like you do two, three, four VC pitch meetings. It's funny. They all ask the same questions. They're all interested in the same thing. They ask the same questions. Um, and you'll find that most VCs are finding a lead investor for something is harder because you'll most often than not go through multiple calls with them before they give you a term sheet. You sign that and it's for a certain amount of money you want to go and raise. And then you go and raise it from other people who just kind of follow on on the same terms. So you better explain that. You're talking about an anchor investor. Mm-hmm. Was I do this? Yes. I say, who else has invested? And I find out Blackbird's invested or I find out that uh, Airtree Ventures has invested or I find out that um, whoever – I'll say, well, yeah, okay, that'll do me. I'll just put a small investment in mm-hmm. and uh, I'll just follow their lead. Momentum investing. Yes. And once again, probability of success. Yeah. You look at how can I minimize the risk of the money that I'm putting into something? Yeah. Well, I know if I've got a name like Blackbird associated to the company I'm investing in, um, which you know, Blackbird invested in us, it really helps. Having a name in an Australian landscape that people trust um, because they know that Blackbird knows what they're talking about. They know what companies they invest in and they're experts in the market. So- one of the other investors, which was really helpful for us pulling the round together, um, was the founder of Big Commerce. So Eddie, um, who's a really great, a big supporter of us. Um, just having names like that that you can talk to people about it, it sets the narrative. When you're talking to an investor who looks at hundreds of pitches a month, to be able to throw names out like that, and not in a way where you're just trying to like, yeah. float, float names, but like. In the US especially, um, it matters who's done what and they're looking for momentum and there's momentum in numbers, but there's also momentum in who else has done really well, who else is backing you um, and why do they care? And that's when that's get like, that's what gets people interested. Most of us prefer, in my case, prefer to have modest investments in lots of things where I think there's A, a good operator, say someone like you, but B, I feel comfortable because I'm, I'm investing because you're a good operator, but equally I know there's risk. So how do I de-risk it in my mind, just emotionally? I de-risk it by looking at who the other investor, investors are. Yep. So if I'm, I make the assumption that the other investor has done more due diligence on it than I have because, quite frankly, I don't have time to do the due diligence anyway. But if I see someone like Blackbird in there, I'll say, well, they've done the due diligence. Yes, I'll invest. Um, because I'm relying on their ability and their skill base to do the right thing by the funds that they manage on behalf of others. So they have actually a duty of care to the investors that they invest on their behalf of. I don't have any duty of care other than to myself. But I can think about someone like that who has a good reputation. I trust them to deliver on their duty of care. That means they'll do the right thing, which means I can run off the back of that. How much effort do you put into your anchor investors and do you talk to them all the time? To answer the second question first, no, everyone's on the same cadence of updates. Um, But I do think like for us, we used to do quarterly updates. Um, And one piece of advice we got from Blackbird was, well, you should start doing monthly updates. And I originally thought it was like, well, hang on a second. If I've got so many hours in a week, um, or say in a month, the last thing I want to be doing is dedicating more time. And yes, I believe obviously keeping shareholders updated is incredibly important, but I think a quarterly update is more than enough. Monthly seems a bit overkill. Their rationale was not so people can keep an eye on you. It's more so because you want investors excited by the journey and up to date. An investor update shouldn't just be, hey, we're going really great and these reasons why we're going really great. It is, we're doing really well at this. We're also not doing very well on this. And these are the challenges that we currently have at the moment. And this is the problem that we're trying to solve. And it's that transparency there that people really care about. And it's just being top of mind. So if Blackbird goes and they speak to some of the other funds that they work with, say it's Airtree or say it's a fund over in the US, them having to beautify at the top of their name um, of like, oh, I got an email investor update from them yesterday. It's the thing they're thinking about. 
to then go have that conversation, there's an introduction there that we wouldn't typically have got if we weren't top of mind for them. So it is a it is like investor updates themselves and kind of talking to lead investors and everyone on a cap table is a yes, it's it's a it's a good thing from a reporting standpoint, but from a just opening doors and opportunity, um, it's incredibly important. And also too, as you would have seen with us, we also put asks in there as well. So how can investors help us? What are the problems we're facing? But also too, what are some of the things that you could do to help? Um, and asking those questions and having that as a forum as well has worked really well for us. And I think it's kind of, it is what the top caliber of companies do. So, I mean, if they're doing it, so should we. It's funny, when I, when I was a GE, the investor relations part of General Electric, you know, and at that time, General Electric, this is in 2005, six, seven, and eight, they were the world's largest company, massive organization. Their investor relations department was massive, like massive. And they would put out investor relations updates literally 20 or 30 a day. And we do really? It, 20 yeah. or 30 a day? Yeah, yeah. Can, and I was the world's largest individual shareholder in General Electric at the time. And I would be getting this stuff and I was always on the website but looking and I was I was reading this stuff and I found it incredibly helpful. And it's it's not because it's, oh, you've got to look after investors. It's not about that. You can't look at it as a mandatory thing. It is mandatory but you can't look at it that way. You've got to look at it as not partnership either, you know, don't look at it that way either but it's, I don't know, it's sort of like a feedback loop that, that the way our brain works nearly, it's, um, you know, like I, I'm continually feeding information to you and you're going to be feeding back stuff to me as to what I should be feeding to you. So you don't over give them anything and you don't under give them anything. And we get the right amount of hormones in this organism the whole time um, because we have built a feedback loop. As you grow your business into past first rounds and into second rounds, when an investor in one of those rounds gets asked, oh, did you invest in Disputify? What did you think? Mm. Then I can say, at, at a minimum, you talk to me. You know, I am. I have got. There's good communication coming back from you, and it's an open platform, so you can. You know, I'm allowed to ask questions. It's not like hands off. Don't only ask me once a year or twice a year. It's it's a quite a good relationship. I mean, it's interesting that you've sort of now experienced and you're telling me this because it's only three years ago that you kicked this thing off, and already you've got that sort of level of maturity, which is probably the reason why you're able to deal with older people within your own organization because they see you doing these things. So it's one thing you said, like, oh, I've got to be empathetic and also, so I get that. But equally what you've got to be doing is you've got to be showing, I understand what the hell I'm doing. And, uh, you know, with these investor relationships, with your communications out to investors, not only the way you do with me as your senior skilled employee, but the way I see you, the way you deal with everybody else. That's how you get people on board. That to me is leadership. I haven't, I haven't spoken about this, but um, one thing I do also do, so monthly investor updates are important, but it's from an investor standpoint. Um, like internally, team-wise, one thing I do every single Sunday night religiously, um, you know, exemption will be yesterday for public holiday in Queensland, so I got sent out Monday afternoon. But um, I've started it now. It's been going for two, three months. It's called a TOM email, which is a top of mind. So every single week, um, it's an email that's structured that starts with the KPIs of the business. So we talk about revenue. We talk about customer signups that week. We talk about um, so the new instant refunds product. We talk about how many merchants we've now got on that. We talk about cash balance. We talk about runway. Now, there are a lot of businesses that get very scared about reporting cash balance and runway back to employees. And I 100% understand why. It kind of feeds back with that unspoken saying of, hey, you've got a 20-year-old in a leadership position that's pushing this ship forward the least that we can know is like financially how stable is what we are. Is it sinking or is it not? We'll have a job. We'll have a job. Yeah. And that's like, to just know that for a lot of people. And it's easy for me to be like, oh, I don't have like, it doesn't, like, it worries me, but it's not like, you know, I'm the guy who's leading the thing. So for everyone else who doesn't get visibility into everything else, it's the most important thing. So you got the KPIs, but then you've also got like, for me, prior week, what was my focus? Like, like what did I find? Was it Mark? So all areas of business, we go sales, we go marketing, we go product, we go dev, um, we go other. So general operations, I cover all those areas. And then also too, looking forward this week, like for me personally, what are the priority areas? Where is my focus going to be this next week? Um, and that covers again, all areas of the business. So it's just the diligence of having a way to 
take what's out of your head, put it on a piece of paper and send it to people um, is not something that I think I'm perfect at, but I do think just in terms of having everyone on the same page so everyone knows where we are going and where time is actually being spent, I think it's priceless. So that's a great idea, by the way. Documentation of your thoughts, distribution of your thoughts to all your employees. And, the, and that's the best thing. They don't actually, and back to your thing, a point earlier, they don't actually have to be right. Like it's not like, and if they're not right, speak up and say something. Like if you don't think we should be doing this in marketing. So one thing we want to do at the moment is we want to start putting out more long form content. So we want to be a community of which merchants look to. Um, so we're a brand that merchants look to um, for inspiration around like, hey, how do I build a refund policy that customers care about? How do I manage returns in the best way possible? So we want to start building content around that. But to do that, it requires work and it requires resources that we have. So do you think that's the best place that we should be spending them? Well, maybe not. Maybe there's a better way that we can go about doing that side of the business. So it's just having those open and honest conversations where kind of like announcing that as a passing comment in some sort of like weekly stand-up meeting with the team, no one's really going to pick up on it. But to put it on a piece of paper where if someone fundamentally thinks the thought or the idea or the direction we're going is wrong in whatever area, speak up, say something, because maybe it probably is wrong. Let's have a conversation about it. Let's find a better way to do it and let's go that way. So it's like a weekly town hall, but in writing. Exactly. Jack, where to from here? So there's a few different things. Um, first, from like a product perspective, um, instant refunds, that second part of the product, that kind of train of thought on how do we help merchants better reward customers who are doing the right thing? Um, how can we encourage or how can we give merchants products that makes you, Mark, more likely to buy from merchant A as opposed to merchant B and it's something that you really care about? So give, a, give the merchant the edge. Exactly. Give a merchant an edge. And instant refunds is the first thing that we're doing there. So that there will be a focus area for us and getting that up. And like, that's been a pilot now for months and months and months. Um, we've got enough data now. We're happy to launch it. Um, so it's getting those two sides of the product from more of a marketing perspective to kind of fit with where we are going as a brand and just kind of making sure we're telling the story the right way in written form, websites and marketing material and everything like that. Um, but more broadly as well, it's acquisition, merchant acquisition. It's how can we get in front of the world's best D2C brands, like direct-to-consumer brands. Um, marketplaces like Amazon are great, um, like eBay are great, but the brands that you would buy from, say, Broad and Gun, for example, how are we getting in front of those guys and how are we positioning Dude, ourselves? Dude, Broad and Gun, I'm not that old. Come on. Oh, no, I just <laughs> – oh, no, the, the, the ironic uh, thing well, – Let's go the iconic. I was just going to say, I don't think Broad and Gun has actually ever come out of my mouth as an example. So, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, my I God. Oh, sorry. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm not going Broad and Gun type of guy. Anyway, I'm only joking. <laughs> no, um, but, yeah, so like the iconic or um, – yeah. Yeah, you pick like a large US retailer, whatever. Um, so it's how we're we getting in front of those people. Um, what is the position? How are we doing it? Um, the US is a massive area of focus for us. Um, it has been and will be moving forward. Um, yeah, the hundreds of brands that we have on the platform, 70 odd percent of them are based over in the States. And it is for an Australian company, how do we, like we're very lucky that the recent round was pretty well all US investors. Um, so how are we positioning ourselves in the American landscape I'm moving over to New York in late July. Um, we'll grow sales and marketing over there as well. And it's positioning ourselves to get in front of those brands and just get them on the platform as quickly as possible um, because part of the value of what we do is a network effect. The more brands sharing data around the type of customers that they're dealing with, um, the better the insights and the better the responses that other brands can then have. So it's, yes, it, it's pushing that, running that as quickly as we can. Um, but then once again, how fast do you run in relation to how fast do you, not to use the word burn cash, but then finding that happy medium and making sure the result, results data shows the effort that you have been putting in is like those three, and kind of think those three graphs and how we're making those line up is at least something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. So yeah, I don't know. That's that's us. That's cool. That's very good. Well, you got a question for me? I've always looked at you as someone who you, you represent – a large majority of business owners in Australia. And I know there are a lot of, I'd like to say I'm still young if I'm 20. There are a lot of younger people who there's plenty of different things they can start, whether it's they want to go through something, you know, to use the word balls to the wall, like um, like Disputify Extreme or might go the other end and start something a little bit more conservative, like a small bakery or a pop-up shop or something. So why, if you were someone, say 20-year-old Mark, if you were to start something today if you were that age and you were kind of a bit more wet behind the ears what would you do and how would you go about it i would definitely go into the technology sector so that's my my first foray um i am but because i know a little bit about some things i'm a big believer in uh, sensor technology 
and about how sensors work in relation to how we live our lives, whether it's just sensors in your home or sensors on your body to tell you about your health. I think health and together along, along side technology uh, is going to be the big boom as we, as the world middle class starts to grow at a far more rapid rate than it ever has before. People start to have money, they start to spend it on themselves. The only way you can actually distribute that selfish view, in other words, how do I live longer and better, um, is with using technology. And the only way the technology will work is through sensors. If I could take one step further, I probably would get a job, by the way, whilst, all this, whilst I'm doing this, thinking about this at night, I'd, I'd use it as a, I start off as a side hustle. So I know that it needs to be developed. But I think I would be looking at someone like Elon Musk and I'd be saying, well, what are the two things he's done? Why has he done so well at him? Um, this SpaceX, it doesn't make any money, um, but it's so mysterious and it's unknown and it's unexplored. So SpaceX attracts investors. That's one is where he's brilliant. And the other one is Neuralink, the other most unexplored thing that we know about, and that's the brain. And that's about future brain health. So I think sensors, brain, technology, those three things somehow built into a wearable or building baselines and working out how our brain can work better, faster, more efficiently. How can Jack Bloomfield be able to do three times what he does in one day in two years' time compared to what he does today or 10 years' time when he's older with a lot more shit going on in his life, family, whatever, how can I equip Jack that capacity? Someone is going to come up with that, that idea. Now, it might, not take, it might take 20 years, but like you, you can raise money for this. Like Elon Musk, you can raise money for this. You can spend 10 or 15 years finding the best physicists and the best chemists and the best biologists and the best neuroscientists because they'll join you because those people all like to work for a wage. They're your typical wage earners and I don't mean that in a, dis- in a disparaging way, I mean that in a good way. They have and they believe in the mission. So it's sort of like funding a lab with investors, convincing investors that the world of technology, brain health is the future, I think is an easy one to do. So maybe that's very interesting. So maybe I even framed the question wrong. So you're, I, I feel, I said for someone who is younger, I feel like this is something that really anyone of any age, any age can go and do. Yeah. But if you're 20 and you're, you, you follow Elon Musk, what I would hope I would do at 20 was I would say, what is he doing that's really good and how has he done it? He's clever at having found two unexplored yet incredibly interesting and important things in our life. So there is money to be made there because all of us want to get better. And the first thing I do is I've got to sense it. How do I sense, how do I get a baseline where I'm at now? So it's interesting. You've um, so used the example of kind of going balls to the wall with something that's really big and bold. Big. So you would say for someone, if you're going to do something, go big, try. Um, hustle, really- hustle, big. Okay. I believe I don't know, but I believe that the next big wave is going to be technology, health, and brain. That's fascinating because I know that, um, like at the moment, the when you look at kind of VC and you look at the money that's going into certain things, um, you look at online, you look at e-commerce, you look at commerce enablement, you look at Web three, for example. Uh, I think there is there's a there's a lot of money going into there at the moment, and I think that if you look at VC in general, one area that is harder to raise money for at this point in time is I don't know if you want to call it med tech or you know mm. put that broad banner on it. Um, so I do think yes. In today's market, I think it is changing and it will be interesting to see five, 10 years time where that ends up um, because I do think, yeah, you are right. If you can help someone 5% improve the, the productivity or the use of the brain they've currently got, like why wouldn't you? It's a no-brainer not to use that. Well, yeah, it's a no-brainer. I'd like to finish on that. But, but, but by the way, where MedTech is concentrated on is how do we detect motor neuron disease or how do we detect Parkinson's disease? They're, they're great detection things, I mean, but they're not that exciting mm. for the investors. How do we make someone's brain more productive? That's exciting for investors. I mean, you've got to turn the brain into outer space and you've got to have the ability like Musk has to convince them. But if you can convince them, you'll kill it. That's That to me is a big deal. And I have heard that well, if you look at it from an investor standpoint, it is the like when you look at how investable very broadly a business potentially could be, it is when they talk about market size, it, it's more broadly like 
how many people could possibly use this product and how deeply do they use the product. So what you're talking about here is to the far extent of that. You could touch everyone with something like this and it's something that they would use day in, day out and it would affect every single thing that they do. And it's why companies like Airbnb or Uber do really well is because anyone can use them and people can use them a lot um, and there's a high level of interaction. So yeah, be interesting. I call it the edge because everybody wants an edge, even on themselves. I want to do better than I did last year and I'm 66 this year. If there was something that I could use or take or monitor or manage or build that so that I know that when I'm 86 that I can still work at the same capacity I'm working at today, I would do it. Hmm. I think that's a big deal. Aging populations want to invest in this stuff because they want to invest in themselves. Definitely. Yep. Good to see you, Jack. You're a killer. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Mentor with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistance, Simon McDermott. This is a mentored podcast. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.